0: We are in 1 Samuel chapter 28, if you'll open your Bibles there. 1 Samuel chapter 28, last week we were looking at David, and David basically is running out of gas. He, you know, life sometimes is more uphill than downhill, you know what I mean? And and a, a lot of times, you know, the Bible talks about how there's a way that seems right to a man but its end is the way of death, and, and this never seems more true to us, this struggle between our way and God's way, than when it's just been a long push, you know, and David has been in a long push, he's been seven years on the run from Saul, he's got another three years ahead of him, and, and just a long time to be under the gun and, and under trial, and, uh, and so David began to doubt God, and, and much like you know we begin to doubt God when we've been going through a trial, and and what we saw is that his doubt uh, affected his belief, and we looked at well, what we believe affects the choices that we make. We looked at how what we believe affects our children, and how what we believe affects ultimately our character. And this is what happened with David. He 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 believed a lie uh, that he had to you know take matters into his own hand, walk by faith or walk by sight, not by faith, and so he chose. Uh, to do just that. He walked into enemy territory. He aligned himself with the Philistines, uh, the enemies of God. And uh, this ultimately affected his children. Uh, And uh, and ultimately, it affected his character. He became a common thief and a murderer. And you know, as a Christian, all you need to do uh, is to stop reading the word to To stop praying, to begin hanging out with the Philistines in your life. And man, in no time at all, we won't recognize you, you know? And, and so this is... Uh uh, this is what David's going through. Now, thankfully, as we continue in the book and in the coming chapters, we're gonna see that, that God is gracious and merciful to David and he brings him out of that season and David's gonna come into a, a, a place where he repents and he returns to the Lord and God, you know, again, is using him to do great things. But today, uh, the, the focus shifts back to Saul. And so we're gonna be looking at Saul in uh, chapter 28 uh, and we're gonna, see, we're gonna see today how Saul's poor choices culminated in in death. And there's three particular things we're going to look at today. We're going to look at Saul set on a dead-end course. We're going to look at Saul seeking dead counsel. And we're going to see, thirdly, Saul sorrowful unto death. Title of the message today, I See Dead People. 1 Samuel chapter 28, beginning in verse 1. Now, it happened in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight with Israel. And Akish, the king of the Philistines, said to David, you assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle you and your men. David, having gone and hooked up with these guys, being where he's not supposed to be, he's now in enemy territory, and Akish is basically saying, hey, you're a skilled fighter and you're going to go with me, you're going you're to fight with me now. And so David, verse 2, said to Akish, surely you know what your servant can do. And he certainly did know. What David could do. David was a mighty man of valor, a mighty man of war. And Akish said to David, Therefore, I will make you one of my chief guardians forever. Now, this isn't going to quite work out that way. And we're going to see this in the chapters to come. But now the focus and the attention shifts to Saul. Now, verse 3, Samuel had died and all Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. Verse 3 is just setting the stage for what's about to follow. And so it's just saying now, you know, here's where it's at. Samuel, the guy that that Saul had looked to to direct him, he's he's dead and gone. Saul had put the mediums and the spiritualists out of the land as well. Uh, understand that and we move on verse 3 or verse 4 then the Philistines gathered together and they came and they encamped at Shenuim and so Saul gathered all Israel together and they Camp, encamped at Gilboa, the Philistines now the storm clouds building, threatening for war. This is a very ominous thing. the The attackers are at the gate, as it were. Verse five. And when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. Um, it's interesting. Jesus, in Matthew chapter seven, he told a parable. He talked about two men. He said these two guys built a house. One guy built a house on, on the rock. And he says, another guy built his house on sand. And, and you know, the, the parable, it's an it's a earthly story with a heavenly meaning, and, and you know, the, basically the picture is, you know, what are you building your life on? The rock being symbol, you know, symbol of building your life on Christ. Uh, sand being the symbol of building your life on anything else. And so Jesus, in telling the parable, he says, so, you know, they both built their house, and he said, the rains fell, and the floods came, and the wind came and beat on that house. Now, of the house that was built on the rock, he said, the, the rains fell, the floods came, beat on the house, and the house did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But the man who built his house on the sand, the rains came, the, 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 the floods came, the, the wind beat on that house, and he said, and the house fell, and he said, and great was its fall. And uh, of course, the, 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 whole, the, the whole idea there is, look, what are you building your life upon? Now, one of the big takeaways from this, this parable that Jesus told was the fact that both men, both houses endured the rains, endured the floods, and endured the heavy winds beating upon them. And again, the, the picture is, in your life, You're going to face the storms that come against you. Those storms, metaphorically speaking, that assail you. And you're not spared from it if you're a Christian, magically speaking. I mean, sometimes we think, you know, the Christian life should be like a country western song played backwards. I get my car back. I get my my dog back. I get my wife back. And, you know, puppy dogs and butterflies, everything. It does not work that way. Some of you say, amen, I know it, I'm living it this week, you know? It doesn't work that way. And so what happens is, is that you will face trials, you will face storms. The question isn't whether you're going to go through hardships. The question isn't whether you're going to go through hard times. The question is, what's going to get you through those hard times? And what is your life anchored in? I ask you the question this morning as we start, what's your life anchored in? And how firmly is your anchor holding? Jesus promised, if your life is anchored in him, you will be held through the storms of life. Well, I tell you that because here we are with, with Saul, and Saul hasn't been anchoring his life in God. He hasn't been anchoring his kingdom in God, and now the storm clouds are building. He's faced the biggest storm he's ever faced in his life, and it is scary blanket time, man. He's just looking for a whoopee in some place to hide, you know? Things are things are really really dicey for Saul. <clears throat> so Saul here, first point, he's set on a dead-end course. The storms of life are coming. He hasn't trusted in the Lord. He's feeling the weight of a lifetime of bad choices. Now, for Saul, it didn't start off this way. You'll remember when Saul started off, he had the promise of God, he had the favor of God's people, he 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 had God's provision and the attacks of the enemies that he had faced. And, And so for the first couple of years of his reign, things went pretty good for Saul. But what happened was Saul began to get puffed up. He began to be prideful. He began to, you know, look at his own press clippings, believing his own press clippings, thinking he was all of that. And so now everything's going to his head. He's taking credit for the victories that he's having. He's building a monument to himself. And the straw that broke the camel's back was that God had told him to attack the Amalekites and to utterly destroy them. And Saul goes and he attacks the Amalekites. God gives him victory. And in his victory, Saul and his men decide, hey, you know what? I don't want to destroy this. I want to take this from them. I want to take this for myself. And, and you know what, rather than kill their, their, their you know, Agag, their, their, their ruler here, I'm, I'm going to keep him alive, you know, as a symbol of my power and my victory and all. And so Samuel, the prophet, shows up and he's like, what's going on here? Saul's so like, hey, praise the Lord, I did what God asked me to do. And Samuel's like, no, you didn't, because I can hear the sheep and the cattle, you know, there that you kept for yourself and all, and there's the king you're supposed to kill, and you know, here he is, and, and all of that. And and the text says that Saul kept everything, air quotes, that was good, in his mind. But God had already called it bad. And that's a picture of us sometimes. So often God tells us to, to, to destroy something. And by the way, You're going to see here in just a couple of chapters, Saul is going to die. Do you know who's going to kill him? An Amalekite. See, he was told by God to utterly destroy the Amalekites. And now what's going to happen is at the end of his life, he's going to lose it to an Amalekite. It's been said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And so this is a picture that God says, this is look, when he tells us to utterly destroy something, it's because he knows what's good for us. Well, Saul doesn't do that, and so Samuel says, you're out, man. Everybody out of the pool, you're done. Uh, God is going to replace you as the king because you haven't been faithful and, and, and all. And, and so he's lost God's favor, he's lost God's anointing. And as we've been going through the book, from chapter 15 onward, what we've been seeing is where he started in victory, and he started with God's favor. Well, from chapter 15 onward, he's operating in defeat, and he's fighting against God. And so 23 years of this is what's going on here as the, the curtain rises on chapter 28. 23 years of building your house on the sand. And now facing this storm, building on this wrong foundation, and he's feeling the full weight of his sin. He's feeling the full weight of the storm that he's facing. Once again, the Philistines are gathering again for war, but this time... They gathered again, they gather against him in chapter 17, but then he had David, right? Then he had Samuel with him. This time, he's got no David. He's got no Samuel. And notice also, he's got no word from God. Look at verse 6. It says, and when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. He's not hearing from God. See, it says, you know, Lord didn't answer him by Urim. What, what would happen? The priest would, would have the, the Urim and the Thuman, and, and basically it means lights and perfections. We don't know exactly what that means, but God would speak to his people through the prophets, and he would speak to his people as they would make this inquiry, you know, by his indication through the lights and perfections and, and all, and God wasn't speaking to, to, to Saul. God speaks to us in a number of different ways. God will speak to you through His word. He'll speak to you through prayer. The Bible says that God speaks to you through the wisdom of a multitude of counselors. God will speak to you through your circumstances. The Bible talks about how God will speak to you by giving you a vision, or by giving you a dream. I remember, for me, I, I was seeking the Lord in the planting of this church several years ago, when we you know I just had stepped out in faith. And I'm like, okay, the Lord's called me to to step away from the church where where I was pastoring and put in my resignation. And now I'm like, I'm a 40 year old man. Uh, I I used to be a firefighter paramedic. Nobody's hiring 40 year old firefighter paramedics now. And now here I am. I'm a man without a country. A man without a job. Felt called out by God to go do something. And I'm like, I'm here. Where do you want me to go? And I'm praying. I'm fasting. I'm reading the word. I'm like, where am I supposed to go? And, uh, and, I, and, and I'm feeling in my heart, after a long period of time, you know, a couple of months of this, I'm, I'm feeling in my heart, you know what, I think maybe God's calling me to go to Seattle. So, I, you know, prayer, fast, reading the word, talking to wise guys that I, that I, you know, admire and respect and so on. Not, you know, mobsters, but, you know. When I, <laughs> Anyway, um, so so at any rate, seeking the Lord. So I'm going to bed one night, and I'm like, look, God, you say in your word that you speak to young men in visions, and you speak to, to old men in dreams. I'm 40 years old. I don't know what camp I fall in, but I'm open, you know? And so I said, look, I'm going to bed tonight. God, if you want to give me a dream, I'm open to it. I just want to know your will here, and you know I've been seeking you. So I went to bed that night, and God gave me a dream. And I know it was a dream from God, because when I woke up, he took me in my mind's eye to the end of John's gospel, and he revealed the, some verses to me there where, you know, Peter is being restored by Jesus, and Jesus is telling him about how all he's going to suffer. And, uh, and Peter looks back, and he sees John. He's like, what about him? And Jesus' response to Peter is basically, mind your own business. He says, what I want to do with him is none of your business. You follow me. And then the Lord gave me the interpretation. So he gave me the dream. He gave me that scripture. And then he said, here's how it all fits together. If you go to Seattle, you're following a man. And I don't want you to follow a man. I want you to follow me. So I'm like, wow, cool. One of the coolest experiences I've ever had where God spoke to me. It was all for him to tell me no. You know, so I'm like, okay, but then that led me to what God wanted me to do. So God speaks to us in a number of different ways, and 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 so, you know, we, we seek him, and we want to be, you know, we want him to speak to us, but if you spend your life building on the wrong foundation, building your own kingdom, eventually God's going to stop talking to you. Listen to what God said to the, to the Israelites through the prophet Isaiah. He said, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. And this is the case with Saul. God won't hear him anymore. Now, as believers, sometimes we go through a season where God is silent, and it's not because God is, is you know, dealing with us as he's dealing with Saul here. Sometimes God is silent, you know, for a purposeful, constructive reason in our life. Sometimes he's silent because he wants to teach us to, you know, to to trust him, to walk by faith, to stand on his word, and to stand on his promises. You know, it's not unlike, you know, those that plant vineyards, they know, these farmers that will plant a vineyard, they will keep the ground on the surface purposely dry, and what they will do is they will water the trees deeply so that it forces their roots to go down. And so, yes, the, on the surface it's dry, but they do that on purpose because if the, if the roots don't go down deep, then when the storms come, those trees are going to be toppled. So sometimes, for us, we go through a season where it's like, well, God, I, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not really hearing from you like I used to hear. I know I'm not in sin. I know that I'm not, you know, rebelling against you. I honestly, earnestly want to seek your will. Hey, listen, God wants your roots to go down deep. It's like that season that I was going through when I was going to plant this church. It was months of seeking the Lord. God wanted my roots to go down deep. And for some of you, that's the word that you needed today. Just to hear, trust the Lord. Stay the course. Take him at his word. Don't let your feelings or your emotions steer you wherever they're going to steer you. No, just stay steady. Trust the Lord. Let your roots go down deep. But for Saul, what follows is, man, he won't, God won't hear him. God won't respond because, man, he's in disobedience. God has been trying to speak to him and he's been resisting him. And so, again, what follows, because God won't hear, because God won't respond, Saul, he turns to another source. So he goes from being set on a dead-end course for the 20 or so years that he's been on. Now God's done speaking to him. And so now we see Saul seeking dead counsel. Verse 7, Then Saul said to his servants, Find me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her, and his servant said to him, in fact, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself, and he put on other clothes, and he went, and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. What, now, what's with all the secrecy? Well, a couple of different things. First of all, God had expressly forbidden the Israelites to tinker around with mediums and spiritualists. We'll look at that more in a minute. But this is decidedly outside of God's will. And there was a time when Saul understood this and he ex- had expelled every all the mediums out of the land. You know, we established that in verse 3, right? Uh, and, and so there was a time when he had done this. So he wants to disguise himself because, you know, if he goes to a medium as Saul, they're going to be like, this is a sting operation. You're trying to get me. You, you got everybody else, and now you're trying to get So he's disguising himself for that reason. He's also disguising himself because Endor is precariously close to where the enemy is amassing to attack them, so he doesn't want to be caught as, you know, the king of Israel, as it were. So he's disguising him. He's got a couple of guys with him. Goes there at night, <coughs> and he says to this gal, please conduct a seance for me. And bring up for me the one I shall name to you. And then the woman said to him, look, you know what Saul has done, how he's cut off the mediums and the spiritualists from the land. Why then do you lay a snare for my life to cause me to die? She's like, wait a minute, is this a sting operation? You guys trying to, you know, you guys narcotic agents here, you know, you're trying to bust me kind of deal. So she's real skeptical. And um, he says, verse 10 And Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Well, isn't that big of you, Saul, being able to make a promise that God is not going to bring any punishment for this blatant sin against something that he has expressly forbidden? Right? This would be like you getting a bunch of guys together. Okay, we're going to rob a bank. Okay, Lord, we just ask for your favor and grace upon us. Let the getaway car drive smooth. And, and let, you know, it's just crazy. This is what's going on here. Verse 11, then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. Now, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul, saying, why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. We don't know how she figured it out. We don't know what Samuel said or what it was. But all of a sudden, she's like, Oh, holy moly, you're Saul and I've just done this and what is going on here? And the king said to her, do not be afraid, what did you see? And the woman said to Saul, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth that word spirit it means elohim it's a, it's a word for god and it's not that she saw god here but for her you get the idea you know so often mediums and spiritualists and you know psychic network they're all just a bunch of hooey and just whatever charlatans and you know so this, this is probably she had some scam going on and all of a sudden the real samuel shows up she's like whoa wait a minute what is going on here and, uh, you know, she, she's like, wow, I've, I've never seen anything like this before. And um, Saul's so like, what did you see? She's like, I don't know, I saw, like, you know, God coming up. Because to her, it is God. She's, she's just a fraud and a phony. It's not God. But, uh, but that's the word she uses. So, um, and so she said, I, 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 he says, what did you see? She said, I saw an old man. Uh, it, uh, an old man is coming up, and he's covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel, and he stooped with his face to the ground, and he bowed down. And now Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I'm deeply distressed, for the Philistines make war against me, and God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore I have called you that you may reveal to me what I should do. And then Samuel said... So why do you ask me, seeing that the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? That is just a really scary verse right there. It's like, what are you talking, God's already spoken, you're God's enemy. Why do you you think I'm going to tell you anything different? Verse 17, and the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, remember Samuel had already said that to to Saul so many years before, (coughs) when Saul was disobedient, and so he says, look, the Lord just did what he said he was going to do when I told you, when I gave you that prophecy years ago, because, verse 18, you did not obey the voice of the Lord, nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, verse 19, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. In other words, he says, tomorrow you're dying. You are gonna die tomorrow and your sons are gonna die tomorrow. And he says, uh, the, the Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. So, Saul here is seeking dead counsel. Um, the Roman uh, philosopher Seneca said this. He says, this, if a man knows not what harbor he seeks, any wind is the right wind. Uh, a modern variant of that, of that uh, uh, saying, you know, the, that idiom would be that, you know, any port in a storm right? And so here's what's happening with Saul. He's going through a storm. God says, I ain't speaking to you because you've been disobedient to me and not doing what I want you to do. I'm just done talking to you. And Saul is in the place where he's like, well, is there somebody who will speak? I just need somebody to talk to me. And, and so, you know, here he's built his life on sand. It's all crumbling down. And so he's like, well, if God won't talk to me, then I'll, I'll go, to, the, I'll go to, to Satan to talk to me, basically, is what he's saying. I'm just desperate to hear from anybody. And listen, what you got to hear in this is the heart of God. Because all God wants from Saul, he doesn't want his firstborn. He doesn't want his hand. He doesn't want his head. He's not looking to kill him. That's not God's heart. What does God want? He just wants him to repent and confess his sin. That's what God wants. I mean, he's just looking for Saul to come to the end of himself and go, I've made a train wreck of my life, God. And and here I am. I've gotten to the place where, you know, you're not speaking to me. Have mercy on me. Forgive me. I'm a sinner. I'm a blow it. I've made a mess of my life. But Saul, man, he's gone so far down the road. When God says, I'm not speaking to you, he's like, well, who can I get to speak to me? At this point, I'll just listen to anybody. And listen, this happens to us. Listen, we get to the place to where if you start disobeying God, and God gets to the place where he's like, I'm done talking to you. And people, the Bible says that in the end days, people will heap up for themselves teachers who are going to tickle their ears. They've got itching ears. And they want to just hear whatever it is that floats their boat and supports them in their sin. And we see that today, there's no shortage of people, and right now there's a real attack on the Word of God. Why? Well, because the Word of God confronts people in their sin, and those that are bound and determined to walk in sin don't want to hear God's Word. And so what they're doing now is they're saying, you know what, the Word of God is the Word of God, and it's written without error, but you know what, you know, it's men that interpreted the Bible that, that wrote these things down and these, are, are, these were right for their day and for their age, but we live in a different time and we live in a different culture and so it doesn't apply to our culture like it applied back then. So what we're going to do is we're going to say what God's word really meant, the essence of it, but you know what? It has a different application in our modern day culture. That is a lie from the pit of hell. And right now it's happening. And so people are saying, you know what? God's word doesn't really talk this way or that way. It doesn't really, it, the, message, the message really isn't about, you know, pick a subject, whatever it is. And they'll twist it and they'll turn it. And that's exactly what's going on here. Saul's like, well, if God won't talk to me, I'm going to find somebody who will talk to me. I'm just looking for some counsel so that it supports me in the direction that I'm going. So this is where Saul's at. And all God wants him to do is repent. He he just wants him to come to the place where he says, "I, I blew it, God. I've sinned against you. Listen, the Bible tells us that if we confess our sins, that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word confess means to agree with God. We agree with God about what his word says. We agree with God about what he says is sinful and not sinful. Listen, God isn't some cosmic killjoy. He's not looking just to make your life miserable, saying, you know, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this other thing because he wants you to, you know, have to toe some magic line so he can just make you dance kind of thing. When he denies something from you, he knows that it's not good for you, it's going to kill you. And Satan has been attacking this from the very beginning in the garden when he talked to Eve. He's like, oh, he's not going to kill you. You do this thing, it's not going to kill you. God's just, he's just trying to keep you down, man. Because he knows that, you know, the moment you eat of this tree, you're going to become like him. You're going to be knowing good from evil. And God just doesn't, he just wants to keep you down. So we need to agree with with God about what he calls sin. We need to call sin what God calls sin. And we need to agree with God about the remedy for our sin because God says that in our sinfulness, we've separated ourselves from God. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. But he says the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And if you will believe in your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, If you'll confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says that you will be saved. And so this confession is, I've sinned, I've disappointed you, and Lord, have mercy on me. I'm going to receive Christ as my Lord and Savior. And this is the promise of God. But rather than doing that, Saul is bound and determined to turn to that person that's going to tell him what he needs to hear, what he wants to hear. I just want to hear somebody talk to me. So he seeks out a witch. Now, the Bible expressly forbids this. I'll read you a couple of scriptures. Uh, Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 through 12. God, speaking to the nation of Israel, he said, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, be very careful not to imitate the detestable customs of the nations living there. For example, never sacrifice your son or daughter as a burnt offering. Just real quickly, what they would do, a practice in this day, was they would worship the god Molech. Moloch was a god of sex, and the way they would worship this god was that they would have this bronze statue of Moloch, and they would heat it up until the hands were glowing hot, and they would take newborn infants and place it there in the, in the hands of Moloch. You say, that's detestable, that's barbaric. That's a picture of how we worship the god of sex today. And people take their newborn babies, and they will abort them, and no, nothing has changed. And God says, "This is you're forbidden, don't do that, don't worship those gods, don't worship the customs of those nations. So he says, never sacrifice your son or daughter as a burnt offering and do not let your people practice fortune telling or use sorcery or interpret omens or engage in witchcraft or cast spells or function as mediums or psychics or call forth the spirits of the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. He says again in Leviticus 20, verse 6 if a person turns to mediums and necromancers, that word necromancers means ventriloquist, somebody who, you know, I'm channeling, I'm speaking, you know, for the dead. He says, if a person turns to these, these ones, mediums, necromancers, whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and cut him off from among his people. Now, there was a time in his life when Saul understood this. And he had expelled the mediums from the land. But at this point, man, he is so determined. He's so bound and determined to go on his own way that he's willing to talk to anybody who will speak to him that will basically tell him what he wants to hear. Now, let me just say this. The occult is real. It is very, very real. I will grant you that there are many who, you know, the psychic network hotline that are a bunch of fakes and phonies. You know, it's like some guy goes to a psychic. Oh, I want to I talk to my dead brother. Oh, okay, wait, 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 let me, let me, I'm getting, a, let me get your brother's name. Uh, don't tell me. Uh, his name starts with an M. His name's Bob Jones. Mr. Bob Jones? You know, and, they, and there are, there are those that are just completely fake, phony, you know, whatever, but, but, The fact is, is that this whole realm of demonic, you know, activity and the, you know, what happens in terms of accessing it, look, it is very real. And you want to guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. You do not want to open yourself up to what is a very dark and very real world. As a matter of fact, Uh, John warns us about this in 1 John chapter 4. He said, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone into the world. So we need to be careful not to tap into this. Now, with this in mind, and just reading through the section of Scripture, there's lots of questions that come up, and this is a hotly debated section of Scripture. And so the questions kind of go this way. It's like, well, it says that Samuel came up, where did he come up from, and and the bigger question is: Is this really Samuel, or or is this a demon disguising himself as as Samuel? And so, great questions. And depending on who you talk to, in terms of you know Bible commentators, you'll get different answers. Jay Vernon McGee is in the camp that hey, no, this was not really truly Samuel, but this this was a demon, you know, that was posing as Samuel, and. You know, to support that argument, they'll take you to to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 16. Um, I won't have you turn there, but basically in Luke chapter 16, there's this discussion and and a parable basically that Jesus tells about this guy named Lazarus, not the Lazarus that he rose from the dead, although I think he used the name in the parable um, for that strategic purpose. Again, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Jesus, in Luke chapter 16, tells this story about this beggar named Lazarus and then the, the rich man that, that, whose gate he used to sit at and he used to beg this rich man, you know, for, can I just eat the crumbs off your table, you know, and, and all. And, and Jesus, in the course of telling the, the story, the, impl- the implication of the story is that the rich man just completely disregarded this man's needs and so, subsequently, they both died. The Lazar- Lazarus dies and the rich man dies And it says that Lazarus goes into Abraham's bosom. He's comforted there. Uh, And it says that the rich man uh, goes to the torment in Hades. Now, basically, what the Bible teaches is that Hades is, is comprised of two different compartments. There's the compartment that's referred to as Abraham's bosom. And this is where those that have died in faith, in the Old Testament, looking forward to the coming Messiah, this is where they were kept uh, securely, right? And then there's that compartment of Hades where those that have rejected God are kept. And if you read in Revelation chapter 20, it says that those that are kept in that place, they're kept there for judgment. And that what's going to happen is, a day is going to happen, it's called, where they come before the great white throne judgment, the book of Revelation talks about, where those that have died outside of saving faith in God will ultimately be judged one day for their works, be judged according to their works. You do not want to be judged according to your works. When I talk to people about, hey, where do you stand with God? That's the, that's, that's the area I get to really quickly. Because what I've found is that there are people who say, Oh, I believe in Jesus Christ. The Bible says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. And so the only hope of eternal life is to trust in God's atoning work for your sin and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And, And so what will happen is, if you ask Christ to be your Lord and Savior, God will not judge you by your works. He's going to judge you by Christ's work. And, and that's the way you want to be judged. But in my experience, I'll talk to people and I'll say, listen, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, I believe in Jesus. Okay, how do you know you're going to heaven? And their answer is basically, well, I hope my good works outweigh my bad works, basically. You know? and, and if that's part of your answer today, I got I to gotta caution you that you're not really trusting in Jesus if that's part of your equation. If you're like, oh, man, I hope you know when I die, I die saving a burning building, a person from a burning building or I hope that, you know, I don't die, you know, in the middle of, you know, lusting after somebody, but that I'm doing something noble, you know, because, you know, it'll make a difference kind of thing. Or, or and it translates in just the way you live your life, if, if that's the way you live your life, because there's some people who are like, well, gosh, you know, I'm, I've, I've yielded to temptation. I've fallen into sin, and I can't go back to God, and I can't talk to Him in prayer. I have no right talking to Him, praying to Him. Because, you know, I was just in the midst of sin. That plays right into Satan's lie. Because he wants you to believe that your right relationship with God has to do with your works. And your earning it and getting it right and so on. No, no. Your right relationship with God is because Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin in your place. And that doesn't give you a license to act any way you want to. The Bible says it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. When we appreciate the fact that God loves me just because He loves me and I'm saved because I've trusted in His work and there's nothing that I can do to separate myself from the love of God, Romans chapter 8 says. Well, then I just want to obey Him. I want to follow Him. I want to please Him. I want to work to fight against my sin nature. But so if you get to the place to where, okay, you know what? I'm, I'm saved by my works. I'm going to be judged by my works. Well, then what happens for you if you die... Listen, you will go to Hades. You will go to that place of that holding tank, if you will. And when Jesus Christ comes to judge the living and the dead, because he is returning, as he's returning as a conquering king, those who are in that place will be judged by their works. <coughs> well, what we have here, this the, the, this this idea, this question is okay. So so look, it, was this really Samuel, and where did Samuel come up from? Well, you know, again, J. Vernon McGee, others, they say, well, according to, you know, this this parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter sixteen, you know, you've got Lazarus, you've got the rich man, they go to. They go. They they both go down to Hades, one in the compartment where he's in Abraham's bosom, or the other one in the compartment where it's a holding place. And then all of a sudden, the rich man, according to Jesus' parable, he's like, oh, I'm in torment. Father Abraham, would you send Lazarus over here to dip his finger in some water and at least, you know, give me some relief? And Abraham's like, eh, you know, that's not possible. And there's a gulf between us. You know, one can't go to the other kind of thing. And, and so anybody from, from that part of Hades can't come over to this part of Hades and vice versa. And, and so, you know, not going to happen. And then the rich man says, I'll come back to that. And the rich man says, well, wait, wait, so well, can you at least go and warn my brothers? You know, can you at least go? Because I got brothers that ain't died yet. And I don't want them to come here. Can you at least go and warn them? And Abraham's response to him is very telling. According to Jesus' parable, he basically says, ah, you know what, they're not going to believe even if one rises from the dead. Now, I, this is where I think Jesus had a very particular and a good idea using this name Lazarus in his story because the people, that, among others, that he was talking to were the Pharisees who had seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead and yet they didn't believe. They wanted to kill Lazarus because they kind of undermined their, their plan and so they're looking for an opportunity to kill this guy because it showed that Jesus had power to raise the dead. And that made him God. And they didn't want to accept that. And so, he's like, and by the way, the larger implication of Jesus said they wouldn't believe even if one was raised from the dead was talking about himself. There's so many people that refuse. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Most amazing fact in human history. One of the most well-documented facts in all of human history. And people reject it. He says nobody's going to believe unless they, you know, even if they raise raised from the dead. So what J. Vernon McGee and others hang their hat on when they talk about, hey, was this really Samuel? And they say, no, it wasn't. Well, they use this parable as an example and they use Jesus' words saying, Abraham talking to the rich man saying, hey, there's a gulf between us and one can't go to the other. Well, if you read the text very carefully, the gulf that he's talking about is the gulf in Hades between the, the bosom, Abraham's bosom, and, and this holding place for the judge, people where people are gonna be judged by their works and and so there are many other people bible commentators who say no what happened and what we read about in 1 Samuel 28 is is not a demon pretending to be samuel but it is in fact samuel and they will cite other biblical examples of when somebody from the dead has come and appeared to people that are living and the then the the most significant example of that is is the the mount of transfiguration When you you read about Moses and Elijah appearing to Jesus, Matthew chapter 17, Mark chapter 9, both tell the same story. And the disciples saw it. Here you have an example of someone who was dead who appeared to the living. And so, you know, there are many who fall into that camp. William McDonald, G. Campbell Morgan, Warren Wearsby, Chuck Smith, Adam Clark, all notable Bible scholars who say this really, the plain explanation of scripture is the best explanation of scripture here, and the text says it was Samuel, calls him Samuel, it's Samuel, and, and, you know, it really, I mean, you can fall into either camp, and it doesn't have to do with your salvation, if you, if you want to believe it's a demon, or if you want to believe that it's, it's God who actually does cause Samuel to appear here, I think it's Samuel, personally, I think, I think this is, this is him showing up, and then you ask the question, well, why, why does God allow this? God's like, I already said, I'm not going to talk to you. Why does God allow Samuel to, to show up and appear to, uh, to Saul when Saul's in disobedience? And I, I don't really know the answer to that question, but I like what Adam Clark hypothesizes about it. He basically says in his commentary that this is a special mercy of God to give Saul time to make peace with his maker. So He tells him, look, you're going to die tomorrow. Why don't you chew on that? Right? And, uh, and so maybe it is. But it's significant that it happens. And here's the thing. And, but one other thing I'd say about this, this idea of Hades and the explanation of it and this, you know, holding place. And for, and because the Bible says that those who are in Abraham's bosom, the Bible teaches that Jesus, when he died, before he raised from the dead, that he went to set the captives, he, ca- he went to set captivity captive. And, and so, you know, Acts chapter 2 says that Jesus went to Hades, but he didn't stay there. 1 Peter chapter 3, Ephesians 4, talk about how Jesus went to Hades to preach and to set the captives free. And, and basically, what, what, what happened is, is that when Jesus came, he went down, he went to the place of Abraham's bosom, and he basically showed up and said, hey, all of you who died in faith looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, here I am. And he preached to them. And then taking them out of that place in in Hades, out of Abraham's bosom, taking them to be with himself. And by the way, those who were in that other compartment of Hades who had rejected him and they're there waiting for their final judgment day, he preached to them, but he didn't preach a message of salvation, he preached a message of judgment to them. You've rejected the Messiah, the true and the living God, the only one that can set you free from this place and you've rejected me. And there will be a day when you're judged for all of eternity by your works. But the Bible says that for believers today, you're like, okay, so what happens when I die? Do I go to the Abraham's bosom? No. 2 Corinthians 5 says we go directly to the presence of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 8 promises that we will go to be with the Lord when we die. And so Samuel, he comes up from Hades and he only has one thing to say to Saul. What's he say? You're all done. Paraphrase that's you're done. You're done. There's nothing else I can tell you. Now, here's what I want you to get. You read in Revelation chapter 2 about the church of Thyatira. And Jesus, you know, is speaking about the church of Thyatira. And he's talking about this wicked prophetess that had been influencing them and all. And he speaks of her and he says, I gave her room to repent. But she wouldn't repent. And I think that title fits on Saul perfectly. The Lord gave him lots of room, 20 years, to repent. And he wouldn't repent. Listen, the Lord's given you a lot of room to repent. Maybe today, for yourself, you would answer the question and go, gosh, the Lord has given me room to repent. And where are you at in that process of following after the Lord, of trusting in the Lord, of living your life? Would God, if he showed up in your life today? Because here's the thing. Saul had Samuel with him for 20 years to seek his counsel, and, and instead of that, he spent 20 years rejecting his counsel. He couldn't get far enough away from Samuel. And now all of a sudden, because he's come to the end of his rope and his whole world is crashing down, he's like, hey, Samuel, would you talk? Because nobody else, God won't talk to me, would you talk to me? And Samuel's like, there's nothing left to say, Saul. You've spent 20 years building your house on sand, and now the storm's hitting and it's crashing down. You blew it, man. That's all I can say. And some of y'all, I would just simply say, God has Samuels in your life speaking to you. And, and, and so you gotta, you got to figure out, like, am I going to start listening to God? Am I going to live a life of repentance and of responding to God? Or am I going to get to the place to where there ain't nothing left to say? God's like, you're all done, man. You're all done. It's just I've, been, I've, I've given you room to repent. And I'm done. I've given you all the room I'm going to give you to Repent. Which leads us to our third and final point, and I'll tie it in here quickly, and it just wraps into this second point. Saul was sorrowful unto death. Look at verse 20. And it says, after Samuel gives him this bad word, this, this, this final word, dude, it's too late for you. Verse 20 immediately Saul fell full length on the ground. And he was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel, and there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food all day or all night. And the woman came to Saul, and saw that he was severely troubled, and said to him, Look, your maidservant has obeyed your voice, and I have put my life in my hands and heeded the words which you spoke to me. And now, therefore, please heed also the voice of your maidservant, and let me set a piece of bread before you, and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. But he refused. He refused. And he said, I will not eat. I've lost my appetite because this is the worst news of all. So his servants together with this woman urged him, and he heeded their voice, and then he arose from the ground and sat on the bed. And now the woman had a fatted calf in the house, and she hastened to kill it, and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread from it. And so she brought it before Saul and his servants, and they ate, and then they rose, and they went Away that night. Listen, Saul was sorrowful unto death. Here's the thing. He was a condemned man that just ate his last meal. That's the picture there. Your condemned man just ate your last meal. And listen, this is what I want to close on. The Bible says it's appointed unto a man once to die and then to face judgment. And for Saul here, man, he was told, you're all done. Now Saul had the benefit of somebody coming to him saying, tomorrow you're going to die. You don't have that benefit. No man knows the day or the hour. The Bible says your life is a vapor. You're here for a little while, and then you're gone. Let me ask you the question, what if God was to say to you right now, this is your last day, tomorrow you're dead. Are you going to be sorrowful unto death? Are you going to be like Saul, where if you're inconsolable, you're like, I've made a train wreck of my life, I had room to repent, opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, and I rejected it. And I got to the place where God's like, I can't talk to you anymore. And now I'm going to die tomorrow. Is that going to be you? Is God giving you room to repent? I would say, listen, hear his voice today.